So here we are on the last day of the year. And I thought about what do I, well, it should be some really important thing to talk about. But you know, one of the things that I've thought about in recent years is that the names of Dharma talks are really insignificant. They don't mean anything. Because whatever, if you look in the um, Dharma Seed catalog, there are all these many Dharma talks and they all say different names of talks. And I think that it, they're, they're probably almost interchangeable, except I pick out uh, some phrase from what I say. But I think I always am saying one or another combination of it's challenging to live a life with so, so maintaining enough uh, vigor and uh, curiosity and zest for life in your mind to refuel your motor because life is inevitably challenging and disappointing and disturbing and distressing and depressing. And it'd be so easy to lose heart in what is my life going to make a difference, what's going to make my life meaningful. For a long time ago, there was a bumper sticker in Berkeley. Uh, I remember it because I was being interviewed by KPFA, and I was making, trying to make the point that um, a mindfulness practice was uh, uh, paying attention, and that it was just really a continued practice of paying more and more attention, and uh, that it uh, lifted up your mind and your heart and connected you to other people. And the radio host who was interviewing me said, have you seen the bumper sticker in Berkeley? At the time, the bumper sticker du jour was, um, if you're not depressed, you're not paying attention, <laughs> which is the backwards of what I'm saying, that we are, we are, if we are not depressed, we are paying attention and so you have to scramble around a little bit and I'm sure that what that meant and I'm, you know, I know him well he's a really good man with good sentiments that it's disappointing to see the various really difficult and sometimes calamitous situations that the world has gotten itself into and uh if we and we tend to see that because that's what's alarming to us. Wow, what will we do about this and what will we do about that? It's like, uh, is it something the matter with your family? You would certainly notice and you'd be concerned about it. I, I was thinking about that over this holiday season. I get uh, a lot of phone calls, you do too, and letters from people with how is everyone and how is everyone. And I think about the holiday letters for the most part. Everybody seems to be doing fine in everybody's letter. And sometimes I think to myself, you know, if you saw them in person and you said, really, it sounds great, you know, they say, well, but, you know, my diabetes is giving me more trouble or this or that. I think actually I didn't have so much of this this year because my friends are getting old and everybody, something is giving them trouble and they can't not say it in their letter. But uh, so it's getting a little bit more real. But how to, it, how to keep your spirits buoyant enough to think this is worthwhile, you know, that uh, uh, we can make a difference. We do make a difference. Um, and that all of practice is somehow being able to keep your eye on a big enough ball that not only the troubles in the world, 
but the awe and wonder in the world and the energy in the world. The fact that half of the world is under 25 and they want to have a long life and maybe they'll pull it out at the last minute. I'm, you know, I can't think of anything else. <laughs> no, really. I mean, the old people are not doing a good job of it. So, that, but, uh, no, not, not to be flip about it, myself, not to be flip about it. I saw another bumper sticker saying, um, Wait a minute, how did it say? Try, wait a minute. Uh, uh, Christianity has the right idea. Uh, well, Christianity has the right message. Too bad nobody's tried it. You know that, uh, and it's, it's kind of a little bit of a, you know, it's an edgy bumper sticker. But, but I think the Buddha also had a good idea about may all beings be peaceful and happy and may we overcome our impulsive urges to satisfy our own needs and not other people's needs. And love your neighbor as yourself is also an old idea, but too bad we're not doing it. The, there's a, uh, the, uh, a wonderful line on the cover of, it's not on the cover of this. It's on, a, I'll find, I'll think, I'll find it in my mind. If you want to be, um, if you want to be happy, if you want to be unhappy, no, no, wait. If you want to be unhappy, if you want to be, I couldn't remember which part went first. If you want to be unhappy, think of yourself. If you want to be happy, think about others. Mm. was on the cover of this month's uh, Shambhala Sun, Sakyang Mipam Rinpoche. And I was thinking about that shift from thinking about yourself to thinking about other people not only because it's nice, but it's actually the key to being well. It's the key. It's, it's actually, in itself, its own rescue from the mind uh, becoming uh, trapped in its own stories and convincing itself, that, convincing itself of the truth of its own stories. <laughs> <coughs> so I began to think about the idea of being interested in other people, and I was thinking about how many other people there are in the world. You know that somewhere there's a, 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 a quote of the exact quote of the Dalai Lama saying, "It makes a lot of sense to rejoice in the good fortune of other people, because uh, more than the good fortune of yourself, because there are eight billion other people in the world." And so the chances of being happy are much better if you think about their good fortune than yourself. So that's a kind of, a, I don't want to say glib and say it about His Holiness, because the truth is we're wired to be specifically interested in our own self, our own well-being and the well-being of our kin. I don't think it can be otherwise. I read a great thing by Joanna Macy, who has been really in the forefront of social activism for 60 of her 80-some years, I'm sure, where the most helpful thing she says is positively human beings have to have a compassion gene because we wouldn't have lasted so long. We must be wired for compassion. We have to be wired. We have, we have offspring that are um, not able to take care of themselves for a long time, so we really have to have... Uh, in us enough wiring to not only be motivated to take care of the offspring, but to stay with them 
and to band together in clans because as people are creating offsprings, you need families and communities to help care for them. We have to be wired to have uh, to live in groups and in communities and keep ourselves alive because otherwise the species wouldn't have continued. I think about things like uh, uh, cows and horses get born and then they stand up right away. They walk around, you know, and human babies can't do anything when they're born. They can move their head one way or another and they can grab on. But that, that's, and they can turn their head. They can suck, but not anything else. And they can't walk around on their two feet for at least a year around that. So they need people taking care. I was thinking this morning that sometimes lines that I've said so many times have such a, a ring in it. I was thinking of uh, Joanna Macy saying, we have to have that uh, uh, wired into us. And I was thinking of the Metta Sutta that uh, says, just as a mother would give her life to support her one and only child, just so should we towards all beings boundlessly open our hearts. And I was thinking that Metta Sutta is millennia old, and now people are discovering that if we tune in, uh, in compassion workshops, if we tune in on how much we would really, how much we really want to thrive, we really want to be well, we want to be free of distress, and we want our kin to be free of distress, and that all that's needed is for the mind to move beyond the bounds of its own kinship and see that those people over there with their kin also wish for them to thrive, just as I do, they wish them for their kin to thrive. That suddenly they don't feel like different from me. I'm noticing more and more that compassion is filling up all the uh, course offerings here at Spirit Rock and other places. And sometimes I think that's funny, as if like, uh, uh, we're now adding to compassion to a practice that was heartless beforehand, which you know it seems, it seems a, you know it seems a little bit strange to me because years ago, what do you think of this? Years ago, I read a a, a remark by somebody. It was in a sermon that some minister gave, and he said, "Every moment of mindfulness is an act of compassion." Can you figure out? I and I get it more and more. Why is every moment of mindfulness, just using the definition of mindfulness, being present in the moment, open to the moment, meeting it with warm curiosity, not flinching in other words, not pushing it out from your vision, just being in the moment. Can you make a reason for that to be? Susan, make a reason. Well, no, you can feel anything but compassion if you were all those things at that time. I mean, if you were presently in the moment and just, you know, meeting every moment as it comes, I think that there's nothing that you, I mean, that you're bound to experience compassion. It's just like one follows the other, I think. I think so, too. I also would go even one step further and say that much is compassion yeah. because in the moment that... We are open to whatever is happening without saying, no, let me not see this and, oh, this I don't, on that I need. 
we are not complicating our own mind state. So we're not making things worse for us. Say, so this is how it is. It's a moment of wisdom. This is how it is. And generosity. And generosity. So tell me how. Well, because by just by being in the moment, you're, you're being generous in that you're not clinging to your, your sense of self. You're just whatever's, whatever's presented to you, you're open to it. And that's, that feels like a very generous thing to me. I think so. <clears throat> I was reading somewhere this morning that receiving a gift is uh, as the same feeling of, produces the same feeling of goodness if you receive it, that someone gives you something. If you receive it wholeheartedly, it's the same uplift as giving it wholeheartedly. You know what I was, maybe I was thinking of it in connection with a thing I've been thinking about on and off uh, that it became, somehow in the last couple of years, it became the speaking style to say when someone, when you say someone, you say to somebody, you say to a supermarket person who's doing, putting your stuff in the bags, and you say, thank you very much. And they say, no problem. Yeah. And I've been really dismayed about that because <laughs> it erases my thank you. You know, that if it was no problem, then there's nothing to thank them for. So then that you, they were giving me a gift by packing my stuff nicely and the eggs on the top. And I thank them for the gift. So it's like a two-way thank you. And we're both side, either side of a thank you. And they say, no problem. They erase the whole thing and, and make you a little foolish for thanking for nothing. Yeah. Well, I like to look at that a, a bit differently. I yeah. When I first heard it, Denada. Yeah. And I love the Spanish language so yeah. much that I found myself going there instead. I thought, isn't that lovely? It's generosity, like there's no obligation. There's no, it's not an interchange. It's yeah. flowing. So that's just the spin I put on it. And then I just yes, love yes. it. I, just, yeah. you know. I see. It's actually all in the spin, isn't it? Yes. It's all in the spin. In French, you say, on n'y a pas de quoi. There's, mm -hmm. there's nothing for which to thank me. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and maybe you can take that as A or B, you know. But actually, I learned from what you just said, Nancy, because I think it's all in the eye of the beholder. Oh, yeah. It's all in the eye of the beholder. The vogue is the vogue of talking. It doesn't mean anything. Roberta? Yeah, just recently, um, I was in India, and um, a gentleman, <laughs> Walter's heard this story, um, a gentleman... I was coming out of a store, and I was pushing this heavy door open, and a gentleman outside, who I didn't know, you know, dashed up and grabbed the door and held it for me. And I said, thank you. And he said, what for? Mm. <laughs> and I said, for helping me. And he looked at me like, isn't that what it's about? Mm. That has so stayed with me, mm -hmm. you know. But yeah. I found that that was true a lot, spoken and unspoken, there, mm. in that country. It was there all the time. You know, the thing that's exciting about that, Roberta, is the idea that people could be um, raised in a culture where you were on the lookout for who needs a door held. Not that you have to, but you were on the lookout for that. A couple of weeks ago, 
It's been on my mind a lot. Some people will probably hear. I said, I'd, it's a long story, which I won't tell, but I'd gotten back from New York, and I was telling about maneuvering myself through Penn Station from one train to another and pushing a, you know, a reasonable-sized suitcase on rollers, but pushing it along. Penn Station is very crowded, people going all over the place and stairways going all over the place. And I'm following the signs to the train that I need. And clearly, I made it to my destination. And at some point, some woman said to me, you know, uh, on this, uh, there's an elevator at the end of the station, which I would, couldn't have seen from where I was. So I went to that elevator. And it, it, there indeed was an elevator. It was in the dark end of the station. But there was an elevator. Pushed the button. It took me safely up. And I was where I needed to be. <clears throat> I didn't have to drag it up the flight of stairs. And it so went in my mind that I thought about that moment for days afterwards, enough to tell the story here, because that I didn't ask for help. That was somebody else, like the man outside the door, who saw somebody who could have used help and offered it. And I thought about, uh, and I, I think I often mention him when we're talking about this, I thought about my friend Jonathan, who after... Uh, September 11th, uh, he lives in New York. After 7-11, September 11th, he volunteered to be part of Emergency Chaplaincy Corps where uh, they set up a huge facility on the waterfront in New York. And everybody who needed something, needed Social Security guidance or Medicare guidance or how to get a death certificate for someone who was missing, or how to apply for low-price housing because there's something. Anyway, everybody who was impacted by that terrible event could go there instead of going to all the different city and state and federal offices, and representatives of all of them would be in that place with their own little booths to help them out. And these people in the vests, like my friend, would circulate amongst the crowd, and the people in the crowd would know that the circulators were helpers, and that you could get one, you could catch one of them and say, "This is what I need. I need a death certificate," and that person would take you over to the people who do that. I need this, and take them to them. They also knew that they were chaplains. Some of them said, "I need someone to say a prayer with me," so they did that with them, and I. I so was touched by uh, the idea that a place could be filled up with helpful facilities and that there would be intermediaries to take you to the help you needed. And I, I said that then, and I keep on saying, suppose the world would issue green vests. <laughs> suppose we gave them out here. You know, you have a, maybe you have to have a reasonable test to prove that, of your integrity. But suppose you could have a green vest, like the service animals that go around with helpers, and we just wore them. And in, in the course of a regular life, or maybe a big button if the green vest is not attractive. But then, then it means that people could stop you anywhere and say, you know, I don't speak the language. I think so much in airplanes where suddenly the, suddenly the, 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 the airplane is shaking, and the pilot makes an announcement, and a couple of people on that airplane are not going to be English speakers. And I think about, you know, maybe, uh, maybe the flight attendants may be taking notice of them. Probably they do. There's so many places where you don't know what to do, 
where you could ask somebody else. And what a different culture it would be if it were, take me to where I need to be. Yeah. I just wanted to say a little bit more about the extraordinary event that happened on Christmas Eve with, with uh, my daughter mentioned earlier that our um, daughter-in-law's younger brother was severely attacked and stabbed, punched and stabbed, sprayed in the face with raid. And what, what happened was that we were, we were at home in Petaluma, my daughter-in-law and my daughter can you all hear, or should you stand up? Stand up. My daughter-in-law had a call from her brother, who was uh, in a grocery store in Los Angeles. And he, he said to her, um, well, you know, my partner's away in Las Vegas, and, you know, I'm spending Christmas Eve alone. I'm going to be alone tonight. And then... Uh, I... Ten minutes later, she had uh, a call from him on her cell phone, and she thought, oh, that's John again. I'm, I'm not going to answer it. And then a couple minutes after that, she had a call from her mother saying that John had been attacked and stabbed and that there was a paramedic there, and he was being taken care of, but it was quite serious. So what actually had happened was that he'd, he'd walked out of the grocery store and he was carrying two bags of groceries, and he went out into the street. He was maybe five blocks from his apartment. And uh, a, a homeless person, who obviously you know, wasn't in his right mind, came up, sprayed him in the face with raid, punched him, knocked him down, and, uh, and John tried, used a grocery bag to try to strike back at him to, to defend himself. And the man got on top of him and, and stabbed him multiple times, <laughs> including in his throat. And uh, he compromised his trachea, and he's a wonderful singer. But anyway, he just graduated from UCLA, got a master's um, in linguistics. And so at that moment, he said he knew, he didn't think he was going to die. And he felt like he was going to be all right. But, and then he felt all this blood you know, coming out of his neck. And so he, he stood up, and he went out into the street, and he w waved his arms, and he thought at the time, oh, I'm sorry that these people have to see me bleeding like this. But many people stopped. And across the street, I'm not sure if it was across the street or, or right there, there were, there were uh, three men standing, and two of them were techs working at a veterinary hospital. And one was a, a paramedic. And the, uh, the paramedic called 911, one of the techs who, you know, knew about bodies came and, and put his knuckle right in the hole in John's neck. Yes. And the other one saw the man who had done it and took chase after the man because he'd seen him in the neighborhood harassing people. So he chased the man, chased him down, and <coughs> was able to, to stop him and saw him throw this kitchen knife away, and the police came. Um, but so John is there with this knuckle in his neck, which saved his life. The, that, uh, that man went to the hospital in the ambulance with him, holding that pressure on his neck. And at, and at the hospital, I think they said 40 people were, you know, in six hours of surgery, and 40, 40 people were with him that night. So he wasn't alone that night after all. Very, very moving story. 
and so and and he's all right. He's uh, you know very he was very badly injured, but he's he's actually home from the hospital now. He's back home, and there uh, there's been a site online for him to give donations. He's after graduating from UCLA, he hadn't gotten his medical insurance yet. So he had university uh, insurance, and then he hadn't gotten any t- new insurance. So, uh, so there's this, a site for donations for him. And, you know, a couple hundred people have already donated lots of money. So it's just, he's so held, mm-hmm. you know, and there's just, the world is full of compassion. So it's like this, you know, her- horrific event um, and feeling alone. And then all of a sudden through this, He's completely held, you know, <laughs> with a compassion. So, thank you very much. What, Roberta? What I had said because it's it's uh, um, it has to do with uh, what we think of, what it things bring to mind. And since I came back from this trip, which was just recently, I had. Uh, said, oh, yes, but when I had um, come and gone through New York, had uh, been in New York a few days each on each end of the trip, and, and I thought about, oh, yes, but uh, when I was at, at uh, uh, JFK, struggling to get some bags out of my sister's car, these two guys were standing there watching and, and yakking to each other, nothing really to do they worked there or something and and never offered a hand mm. okay that's what i mm. have been thinking about in contrast mm. but when you just mentioned your penn station experience mm. i thought to myself why haven't you thought about uh, it was several years ago. I, too, was in Penn Station, and I was going down the stairs to the Long Island Railroad, and I had a bag with me, a, a suitcase. Uh, and I, I I get to the top of the steps, which it's like two flights, and I'm standing there for a second just thinking about what the best way to do this is, when suddenly somebody picked the bag up out of my hand, never said a word, picked up the bag, and it was a young man. He put it on his head. He (laughs) ran down the steps, and when he got to the bottom, he set the bag down for me to take and disappeared Mm -hmm. into the crowd and never said a word. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, when you told that story, why do you think about the two guys at JFK who didn't help you and not about that young man. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's a fantastic point that I'm happy you brought up, Roberto, because I was going to bring it up sometime today. I was thinking it myself this morning that I'm, I th- I'm, I'm sure, you know, here I, I'm talking like I know something definitive about neurobiology, but I think we think more about the two guys that didn't help because that was a frightening experience when you have an experience that people, you need some help and people don't help you and you feel, oh, what am I going to do with my back? I'm standing here and these guys are not helping me. And that's kind of a wounding. And somehow part of our animal nature really says, mark down, these are, this, you know, these are bad situations. Then another situation where it completely reverses 
is the other way. And then the question is, why do we remember this and not that? Or, I'm going to do this very fast because I want to continue. I like it when everybody else talks. Many people here will know, this is a story that combines both of those elements. Many people here will know, will know I've told these two stories because two years ago, I also had a bag and someone picked it up. It was a difficult situation. I was coming home from France by myself. The whole background is complicated. My husband had been sick now as well. But I also had to go up two flights of stairs and a hand came from behind me, picked up my bag and said, Je vous aide, I'll help you, madam. Je vous aide, madame, and ran up two flights of stairs, put the bag, pointed to the bag, and left. And I came back and I told that story and I said, look at that. People are kind. You know, you can only, you know, I can always depend on the kindness of strangers, da 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 And a year later, I was back in France with the same bag, <laughs> changing trains in the Gare du Nord and getting on the shuttle to the Gare de Lyon. And the uh, train is very crowded, and a man behind me says, Je vous aide, madame, picks the same thing, I'll help you. Picks up my bag, pushes it into the train, to the way other side where the other door is. I think, you see that? You look at that. People can help you all over the place. You don't have to worry at all. And here I am, wedged into this tight train. All around me, people I don't know anybody. I'm small. I can't see where my husband is. So not a, I'm, I'm completely without, you know, I'm blithe. This is fine. And I'm giving myself points for the, really, relax. This is great. Look at that. You who worry about it, Nothing, just completely relaxed. Two stops later, I get off and I discover that my bag that's been hanging in front of me as I hold the bag, the, my hands on the suitcase, has been opened and my purse has been, my wallet is out, my, my passport is out, everything is out. And that uh, between where I got on and where I got off, where the first stop, the person behind me in front of me had had a big coughing fit like like I was having last a big coughing fit and spontaneously you have a fit of coughing ah into somebody's face they close they turn their face turn my face just in the point where the tracks lurch this way I'm lurching and turning coughing 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 door opens this man gets out closes I go to the next station I get out ah no stuff so I, I, so it was exactly the same, not only the same phrase, it was like the universe. You know, I don't believe that the universe, but anyway, it was as if the universe had said, the same phrase, I'll help you. And I could see that in both cases, my, my teachers, I'm thinking my teacher Joseph Goldstein would love this as a story because he said to me any number of times when I had fanciful explanations for what was happening to me in some meditative state, he would say, don't reify, Sylvia. It's just what it is, you know. <laughs> so that the first time this happened to me, I said, look at that. You know, I take an event. Someone, the event, what happened to me was someone helped me in the station. I then extrapolate that people all over the world are kind. <laughs> the second event, someone ripped me off in the station with the same tagline. And they, but I'm not prepared to say people are not kind. So, you know, some people are kind, some people are not kind. And I, at the time, I was never actually mad at that person. I'm still not mad at that. I just realized I was so dismayed. I couldn't believe that I'd 
been so gullible. I mean, you need to watch yourself in the subways. But I thought to myself right away, undoubtedly this man needed that money, you know. And how do I, you know, who's to say what circumstances would have to be for me to take somebody something? And it was a really a great relief not to be mad. If I were mad at anybody, I was annoyed at myself for not, for being, uh, ex you know, oh, look at me, I'm so relaxed in the whole world, everything, you know. The, the Sufis have a, a statement where they say, praise God and tie your camel to a post. You know, that, uh, you know, that uh, some people are kind and keep your hands over your purse for, for those so, but, but in terms of understanding how the psyche works, because your question's a really good one, Roberta. How come some people remember the bad and other people remember the good? And do some people remember more good than bad and other people more bad than good? Do we have a thermostat set to say, aha, see, it's bad, bad, bad. Or, aha, look at that, it's an omen, it's good, good, good. Do we have a thermostat? Are we trained that way? I have a, my, my friend Shefa, who you met last week, who was here last week, uh, who teaches, uh, says, I, I think of everything that happens to me as uh, a, a lesson. It's a gift. I could learn something from it. So I think she's, she's better than I am, actually, more. I don't think it's a gift. <laughs> I, I, I think it's a thing. <laughs> uh, that gift is also reifying that there's a gift er and a purpose. Um, many years ago, a very close friend of mine died quite young of breast cancer. And she said, in the, in the, really near to her dying, she said, you know, I learned so much and I grew so much from having this cancer. I really solved so many of my psychological things and I... I healed my rift with my ex-husband, and I healed with my children, and I healed with my this, and I healed with my that, and I grew so much. She said, if you want to know, I would have rather not grow and rather not be dying. <laughs> so that's the bottom line, is we actually want to live. I think we do. That's what keeps us going. We have an in instinct to live, but not to reify, to see things as they are. And everything else is a story, pretty much. This is, what, this is a vision that I have. What do you, what do you think of this? Because I was thinking a lot this morning earlier about Sharon saying, imagine you're in a, a football stadium and somewhere over there is a friend with a red hat. So you're looking for the friend. And uh, those of you who are here a lot, oh, you know what? We didn't say who was never here before and is here today. I always do the, or the lady didn't do the basket. <laughs> Anne didn't do the basket talk. Everybody knows what the basket is. There's Anne. We'll, we'll let Anne tell. But Anne, if she can, Anne, would you mind if I tell? We have baskets up there. You pay. You paid um, a requested fee for the for the class. If you put money in the basket for me, it's a gift for me. It's a. It's a. It's it's my salary, so to speak, from Spirit Rock. It's not in addition to the salary. It is a salary, but you determine it, which is pretty weird um, in Western culture. It's not weird in Burma. If I were a monk, 
Oh, I feel bad now I said that in the whole tape. Oh, the whole world is hearing my view. And I can't expunge it. Gosh. It's an, it's an awkward, it's an interesting and awkward practice that we have here. Because in Asia, where dana is practiced as the medium of exchange, the, uh, the teachers are largely monastics. And they live in monasteries who feed them and house them and provide for their medical care and all of that. And in the West, we're largely not monastics. And um, this is a vocation that we've chosen. And uh, my teachers, 35, 35 years ago, decided they'd bring that tradition from the East. And uh, they were, at the time, itinerant teachers going from place to place, very much in the style of the monastics. But now we've settled down. We have a place, and they have places, and people have homes, and, and health insurance plans and all that. So we're trying to work out at Spirit Rock what will be a, a way to... Uh, work with that cherished tradition and still uh, make it possible for people to choose this as an ongoing vocation for a young person who needs to think about retirement funds and that kind of thing. We are the in-between generation. So this is the view I'd like you to think about. Uh, often when we teach metta, when we talk about loving-kindness, we say, think about the people who are nearest and dearest to you so that you can really feel how much you love them. And that back-and-forth uh, feeling of love really fills you up with such a good feeling that you can then think about other people whom you love a lot, your benefactors, your kin, your close working relationships, your best friends, and all of which make you feel very filled with happiness for yourself, that they're your friends or your kin, and you can wish them well. And then traditionally, you, you work out to uh, neutral beings, people you don't know, and all beings, even past human beings. And in between, at some point we bring up, there are some people who are in their own category of difficult beings. Uh, in, in the traditional text, they're called your enemy. Uh, but that's not so PC in the West to say enemy. So we say difficult person, person with whom I've had difficulty. It works better that way anyway. En enemy is a very charged word. Um, what's become clear to me is that all these categories of beings are not that separate categories. That... Uh, what we're actually doing is not saying, okay, now I got used to all my family and kin. Now I'll make it a little harder and I'll get more people, my dentist, my hairdresser, uh, and then I'll get more people. I think what we're doing is looking to exercise the muscle of the heart. It's like when I go to a gym, they have a lot of barbells there. So I start on the barbells I can lift, and then I lift other ones, and then I lift other ones. And it's not about becoming a barbell lifter or going in the Olympics for lifting. It's about building up muscles in my body so that they'll work in all other circumstances. I'll be able to carry my groceries and 
or my grandchildren or whatever it is that I'm carrying. And I think that all those categories are very uh, clever and insightful heuristic devices to uh, give you another uh, opportunity to practice that hard opening. If I went to the gym and I stayed with the same machine for an hour, I'd get bored. But if I change the machine and I do it this way and that way and that way and this way, then it keeps you interested and by and by you're building up your upper body. The other thing that is, so I'm thinking about, they're all, it's not about including this group of people or that group of people. It's giving your mind something else to work on as a way to exercise the energy of your heart, the muscle of your heart to wish well. And then I think the other reason that the categories that are set like that don't work so well for me is because people move in and out of categories. My best beloved, with whom I've spent now more than 60 years in intimate relationship, moves from being best beloved to a difficult person, to neutral person, to back to best beloved, to, is that not true? Am I the only person that finds that true? My children are best beloved until they're not, and then they, you know, until they, so they move in and out of that. And I think that, I think they're supposed to, because it's not the person that we're responding to, it's a certain behavior in the moment that either calls up antipathy or delight in us. And it's working with our own minds so that with antipathy or with delight, we can get our balance and say, whoa, just I had a, I had a moment there where anger arose, but you know, really, they're a great person. Relax. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be happy. May I meet each moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. Whichever rubric I'm using to catch my balance, because it means when when something happens and a strong emotion arises, it pulls with it immediately a story. Immediately, somebody. You get to a corner where you're supposed to meet somebody, and we're going to meet at noon in front of St. Raphael's Church, and it's a minute after noon, and the wind is blowing a lot, and you think, they're not here. They always are late. They're always late. You know, I should always add 15 minutes by the time they come, you know. And it's not me. It's just the way they are. I know they love me. And they come around the corner. But in that 30 seconds, you stew up the mind, so it's already not receptive to seeing them. You're not as delighted as you would have been if they had come two minutes earlier. And it's the same person. And it's all because of what happened in your own mind in that two minutes, isn't that? You know, that how to be able to say, ah, they're late. Because it's like, it's like I'll help you, madam. I'll help you, madam. Some people are kind. Some people are not kind. Sometimes I'll help you means I'll help you. Sometimes I'm late means I don't care about you and I'm just, you know, blowing you off in some kind of a way. Sometimes the late means I couldn't find a parking space or I stopped to aid somebody who was needing aid. You don't know anything. We don't know anything. And we make our decisions moment, moment by moment. I'm so convinced of that. My, uh, my uh, New Year's resolve is really to build the, the wisdom factor in my mind so that I know it, wisdom that uh, uh, establishes and is um, 
upheld by equanimity. I want the wisdom that's going to say in any moment that my mind gets startled, where are they? Or look at that in the window there. It's after Christmas. It's on sale. I've been wanting it. Ah, you know that all of, both of those startles to be able to meet them with. Oh, look at that. Mind got startled. Take a breath. Think about this a little bit. You want to do this? Think it over. Not to do it or not do it, but to think it over. Establishing equanimity. Sometimes he you say, oh, well, I actually have been wanting that for a long time, and it's something I could use that makes sense. Okay. Or, you know what? Probably I fancied that a lot just because I kept telling myself I couldn't have it. Now I can have it. I really don't want it. So, you know what? You ever find that? By the time you can have something, you really didn't want it? What is your New Year's resolution? We have time. Oh, you know what? How about a one-minute think about it. Ready, set, go. One minute think. If you had to make a one-minute, I just told you mine, and I explained it. One minute. You have a resolution? Talk to the person next to you for two minutes each. You tell them, they'll tell you, and they'll explain what it means. If you don't have two people, you'll do three people. Ready, set, go. No, I'm, I'm, I'm eavesdropping. Go ahead.
Wow, okay. Because the first thing I thought of was to spend more time with you <laughs> and to come on Wednesday and see you when you're Oh, that's dear. What's your name? Jean T. Jean T. Jean T. Vous êtes né en France? Oh, non. <laughs> no, no, no good. No, I've got the Spanish and the German and the other language, and now Italian. So yeah. So my French is terrible. It's terrible. So who gave you that name? Um, my grandmother. So meditation and mindfulness is weightlifting for the heart. Yes. Lift Actually, the weight and lift nice, the weight to that's lift a, the weight off the heart as well. That's a, wait a minute. That's very nice. I'm going to write that down. It's such a joy to be with you, Oma. That's a joy Weightlifting for the heart. I have a question. You probably want to start again, but I do have a question for you. I'll wait until next week. No, what's your question? Well, it's. I'm trying to be a good little Buddhist and yeah. being a very generous person. I think I'm one of the green best people. Yeah. And but I feel lately that I'm not, I know that we're not supposed to give to get something, yeah. but when you're giving and giving and giving and no one's giving back, you start to feel used and yeah. it really hurts. Yeah. And I don't know what to do about that. <laughs> Because really the giving is supposed to be giving in such a way that you don't feel diminished. But you know, we're human beings and we really hope that something's going to come back. You do the best you can. Yeah, and we find it somewhere else. Right? Right? I'm going to carry my luggage today. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Happy New Year, darling. You too. Did you do it? Yes. Okay. So, how about just for just for just to for a little change? Instead of standing up and saying my my uh, my um, resolution was, how about the person I spoke to's resolution was? See if you can do that. Can you do that? Is that too hard? There you go, Maria. Say it again, though, so people will hear. The person I spoke to, their resolution is to live gently. There you go. The person I spoke to, her name is Bonnie, and uh, she, we were very similar in that we want to be uh, more responsive and less reactive and mindful when... Um, outside situations create stories in our minds. Thank you. My person partner wants to hold and nurture babies in some environment. <laughs> It'll come back. My person wants to meditate every day. Anybody want to take that up as a challenge? 
It's just that tomorrow's the first of the year. You want to meditate every day? Okay. Um, my um, partner, Margaret, wa wanted to um, just find herself in situations and to listen very deeply without the story. My person, Justine, wanted to um, lead with her heart and, and then with her feet. <laughs> feel, feel her feet on the ground, gra more grounded. Here we were over here. Not sure I have it all, but my partner wants to um, study the Four Noble Truths. Take one truth each month for the next four months, starting with suffering. Just explore it and see what it means to his practice. It's even no, but then, 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 then nicely we have eight months after that, so we study each uh, of the eightfold paths. Uh huh. And my argument, my argument is that I did this last year, and you forget. Um, but it's. To take these away from just slogans, from sort of meaningful, the Buddha said, plop, you know, we hear it over and over again. But what does it really mean to, to think deeply about right action or right livelihood? I'm not sure that microphone is working. Yeah, that, yeah. You have to look it close, but I don't know that it's working either yeah. too well. Yeah. Can you turn it up a little maybe? You know, the, 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 uh, that very, the question that, what's your name? Peter. Peter brings up is um, uh, his resolve is to really start with the Four Noble Truths and do uh, take one truth and think about the nature of suffering and on the many levels that we experience suffering in our minds and bodies. Uh, and the Second Noble Truth, the, the insights we could have about the uh, arising of suffering and the end of suffering and how to work with our, with our own minds uh, around that, and the third noble truth is the experience that peace is possible, <coughs> which we have all had. I really think if we marked it down more, if you have a moment where you think to yourself, everything at this moment is okay, that's a moment of realizing that the body could be feeling good, body could, doesn't have to be feeling good, but it's a help if it feels good, and everything is just okay. It doesn't have to be spectacular. It does not have to be the yellow submarine. It could be having a, a cup of tea. I think we did used to think it was the yellow submarine in the 70s and in the 80s and in the 60s. It could be having a cup of tea where your mind is at ease and nothing is ruffling it. It doesn't have to be empty of stuff, just at ease. Deepama, who was the teacher of my teachers and someone I met and admire very much, said that her mind was filled. They said, what's in your mind? She said, what's in my mind is um, equanimity and peace and loving kindness. So I like that. That sounds good. I would like to have that. And I, I think about that. And I say that all, all seriousness, with all seriousness and all respect. I, I'm not at that place where that's all that's ever in my mind. 
I probably told you, but this would be a good story just, well, it's 11 o'clock, that um, it would have been 1995. I was at a meeting of Western teachers with uh, the Dalai Lama in Dharamsala, and 26 of us had come from all over the world. And the uh, oldest person there was Mahago Sananda, who's now died, um, and who it was, you know, he's a, he was a monk in uh, orange robes, little Cambodian monk, uh, versatile in, educated, versatile, uh, conversant in many languages, and he didn't say very much. Most of the time what he said was, may all beings be peaceful and happy. May all beings be peaceful and happy. That was most of his contribution. And I talked to someone who had been in a conference with him two years, oh, a couple of years before, said that's all he says is, may all beings be peaceful and may all beings be happy. And I think it's his resolve and it's his experience in any moment that that's his practice to say it. That, that, you know, really, that's the, if the intent of my mind was, if my mind was filled of loving kindness, all I would say was, may all beings be peaceful and happy. And if I said that, I'd probably feel peaceful and happy. And I don't think it was, I, I don't think it was because he was old, because on different occasions he said other things, but mostly he said that. And he seemed very much in touch with his faculties at that time. As a matter of fact, it was 1995, because it was 50 years, just in that year, in April of that year, they had marked the 50-year anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. And he had gone there for that, along with clergy. The liberation of Auschwitz happened in 1995, and uh, several of my friends who were rabbis were there, and other ministers of other faiths were there, and he was there. and. What they did on that day in April, I'm not remembering what exact day it was, uh, 50 years later, is they symbolically opened the gates of Auschwitz. This whole crowd of clergy walked out from Auschwitz together. I still get goose flesh when I tell you about it. And he was there with them, and then they made a walk. And they walked from there. Not everybody walked the whole entire way, but people joined the walk and left the walk, and Jay and the walk and left the walk, all the way to Hiroshima in August of that same year, to be there on August 6th. And he was in both of those places, so I think our Dharamsala meeting was the following year, because I knew about it. I, after the Dharamsala meeting, I said to my friend who'd been there in Auschwitz, I said, he didn't say much. He said, may all beings be peaceful, may all beings be happy. She said, that's what he said last year. But, you know, I think that was his practice, and I think that was what was in his mind. and. Uh, I'd like to have that in my mind. That'd be a... Why don't we make that as an intention for all of us? May we all of us have minds that are so grounded in wisdom and so awakened in love that the only thought we have is may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.